0: Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson
1: And I'm Paul R. Henlicke.
0: Today on the show, we are taking another stab at the lectionary, or really, I'm taking another stab at the lectionary, and dad is going to put up a half-hearted defense of it. Well, maybe <laughs> not quite like that. <laughs> um, I am not opposed to the concept of a lectionary, but I am constantly, maddeningly frustrated with the actual reality that is the Revised Common Lectionary and um, parallel programs to it, and that will be the object of my ire. But first of all, lest people think that I am some sort of complete anti liturgical heretic, I do want to say for the record I think the idea of a lectionary is an excellent one, as well as ign- acknowledging that it is an ancient one. Um, Dad, why don't you, um, since I will be ranting and raving all through this episode, why don't you first let our, read, our listeners hear your mellifluous tones explaining to us where lectionaries come from?
1: Well, I'll try to speak sweetly here uh, and <laughs> mellifulously in regard to the lectionary. Totally out of character for me. I'm sorry.
0: Yeah, okay. I think you better punch it back up again.
1: <laughs> the, the You know... Lectionary preaching is really rooted in the concept of a, a liturgical year, uh, an annual calendar, in which the uh, gospel narrative of the ministry, passion, uh, vindication, exaltation, and coming glory of Jesus Christ uh, is lived through uh, liturgically through the course of the church year. And so if you're going to organize the cycle of secular time by infusing it this way with the specifics of the life of Christ, which he lived for us and for our salvation, obviously you've got to deploy scripture in such a way that it articulates and reinforces that living out that annual cycle of living out the life of Christ for us so that Christ can be formed in us and the way you do that of course one of the ways you do that is through the appointed scripture lessons and their proclamation at the uh, in the ministry, uh, the service of the word, which is the first half of the normal uh, Sunday gathering of the faithful. Uh, of course, the church year in this sense only takes up half of the annual cycle. And so you have a long season of time after Pentecost, which is filled in, as it seems often randomly, uh, i quite agree with some of your criticisms about to be said here. Uh, but I think this is, first of all, you have to grasp the fundamental idea of the church year and its intention to uh, form us into Christ so that Christ can be formed into us. Uh, that's the intention of it, and that scripture lessons are chosen accordingly for that purpose. Secondly, uh One of the salutary uh, benefits of the lectionary is to prevent preachers from cherry-picking the scriptures and constantly uh, picking on their own hobby horse, requiring both the preacher and the congregation to regularly encounter the range of texts in scripture I remember many times as a young preacher how awkward it was to have to preach on certain texts that were assigned. But then again, I also thought that this was a very important discipline, that every sermon should at least, at the beginning of the week, intend to integrate the message of all three texts into a meaningful sermon for the congregation, though it doesn't always work out that way. So that's a, that's kind of my defense of, as you put it, the concept of a lectionary, if not the reality of the revised common lectionary.
0: Yeah, and I, I believe it, it has its roots in the synagogue and the cycle of readings that developed in in early rabbinic Judaism. And you know, as readers, listeners will not be surprised to hear I'm I'm definitely in favor of that kind of continuity. Um, also, you know, throughout the history of the church, there was always um, a lectionary. It was usually a one-year lectionary rather than a three-year. And it usually, as I understand, did not have an Old Testament reading, maybe a psalm, but not like, as we know, as the first lesson. So in terms of just getting more out there, I can certainly say that um, modern lectionaries with a three-year rather than a one-year cycle, and including the Old Testament, those are definite improvements over over what came before. Um, so I, I, should, I should say that. Also, I would say I'm a huge fan of the church year. I think it's a wonderful thing, not least of all, just to have a different marking of time from the business cycle or the school cycle. I think it helps to anchor Christians in a reality that is not just a, the swirl of activity around them or even the the cycle of the seasons. Um, I remember I, I had a friend in graduate school who came from one of these um, repristination Protestant movements, and she told me that every year on what everyone else was celebrating as Easter Sunday, the preacher in her church would proudly say that they don't celebrate Easter because they preach the resurrection every Sunday. But she said, <laughs> actually... They don't. They preach the subordination of women to men every Sunday. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes, uh, the, the resurrection should be mentioned more than once a year, but there's probably some value in having a day in which it is the central, defining, overarching theme. So, all right, well, l- let me get into, again, the- these criticisms. And I'm speaking here as someone who grew up with um, the Common Lectionary, which was the first kind of ecumenical effort to create a cross denominational one. And then the Revised Common Lectionary, I think it came about in the late 90s. I'm not sure. Sometime between, I think, when I was between high school and college or something like that. And so it is the basic cycle of readings I have heard all my life as a churchgoer and twice now have. engaged with as a preacher. And I have to say, more than ever now, as a preacher, I am... Well, okay, I'll just get into it. So first of all, the Revised Common Lectionary omits three quarters of Holy Scripture. Now, I know you don't want to read the entire telephone book of morality that is Proverbs in church, but the fact is we claim to be all about sola scriptura and that it is the norma normans and all these good things, and yet we do not hear it uh, three quarters of its contents over the course even of three years. To me, that is a pretty big problem. Problem. Furthermore, to add on that, a lot of what is left out is the same kind of thing. So there is very little in the way of vengeance, lament, genealogy, census, architectural design, and any whisper of the exile, or at least the narrative of the exile. I find this very interesting in the sense that we claim that all of it is holy scripture and that all of it is a vehicle of God's word. But in actual practice, we're simply saying, no, There, there is nothing godly in there. Um, Again, if we're claiming to be connected to the synagogue, all of the first five books of the Bible are read in their entirety in the synagogue, including every last bit of Leviticus. We have one reading twice from Leviticus 19, and that is it. So obviously Jews think it's okay to plow your way through all that stuff in the Pentateuch. But um, no, we Christians apparently are too good for that.
1: Can Can I make a comment here, please?
0: Yeah you you can push back at any point dad cuz i'm just going to rant and rave like i Okay.
1: A... All right. You know, now surely of course the entire canon is canonical scripture but you wouldn't want to say that every portion of scripture is as weighty as some other portions of Scripture, would you, or is relevant to some other portions of Scripture?
0: Well, here's the thing. How would I know? I never have a chance to engage them. <laughs> I could just preach John 3.16 every single week. I mean, you can't do better than John 3.16, right? So why bother with Romans?
1: <laughs> okay, point well taken. How would you ever know that 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 some scripture is less weighty than others if you don't ever hear that other scripture. Is that what you're saying?
0: Yeah, and I mean, on some level, I mean, this, this burden is going to lie with preachers because like, realistically, it, it would be hard to read the entire Bible on Sunday services only in a reasonable amount of time. But I don't think, probably, uh, this is something we'll come back to later, that pastors are regularly reading all of scripture and furthermore, I'm sure they don't feel empowered to bring non-lectionary aspects into it to inform what they are actually preaching on. And I think there's something about the way the lectionary works that deters that kind of cross-canonical fertilization.
1: I guess my comment on that would be that uh, something we've said earlier in our podcast is that pastors have to be teachers as well as preachers. And liturgical preaching is one kind of thing perhaps it wouldn't be good in a worship service to read two chapters of Leviticus just in order to say that we're covering um, an unpopular part of Scripture. But maybe it would be good for a pastor in a Bible study to say, let's take a look at Leviticus. I mean, there, there are different ways that you could go about tackling this problem of omissions that you're referring to. I think what I find particularly offensive here is when they go at it with their scalpels and cut out negative passages oh yeah what are perceived to be negative passages like uh, uh, passages threatening divine wrath or vengeance just cutting them and, and and that changes the whole sense of the reading
0: yeah you see that so much with the psalms like it's like verses 1 to 6 comma 8 through 10 and like well what's going on there? in seven, <laughs> you know, and right. then you look and see, you know, and, and let the, my enemies be cast down before me and my boot on their face, you know, or whatever. <laughs> so uh, right. yeah, I, I, I would say preachers out there, if you see omitted verses, put them back in and just cope with the consequences. Okay. So another thing, speaking of John 3.16, we do hear John 3.16 in the course of the lectionary, but John does not get his own year. So I'm guessing that the logic here is that each of the synoptic gospels, because they follow the same basic plot line, they can each have a year, but John is too different or has too much discourse and not enough action. So John does not get his own year. But then John is dropped in occasionally into the other years cycles and when they do there are just these insanely huge chunks. So for example there are 5 weeks straight of John 6 on the bread of life. I'm sorry, if you can preach 5 straight weeks on the bread of life you are a better Christian than I am, but like I just I don't know what the idea behind that was. So um I just think it's very, the relationship of the, the Gospels to each other in the, the year-long cycle is poorly thought out here, especially where John is concerned.
1: Well, that's why we're going to spend some time in the next couple of podcasts uh, trying to uh, teach the Gospel of John and how, why it would be so awkward, perhaps, uh, to be incorporated into the liturgical year.
0: Or maybe why we should have a whole year for John. Okay. Moving on. So you mentioned earlier trying to um, preach on all three texts together when you would preach. Um, I would say that I actually I rarely do this. I usually pick one and stick with it, though I try to range across which lesson it is. Uh, but this is probably the the first um, seedlings of my passion for the Old Testament is over time, I I remember as a young person hearing lectionaries that um, the Old Testament is basically um, a pale and inadequate version of what Jesus does better. And so the whole reason you have an Old Testament lesson is to show how Israel did it bad and then Jesus did it better. And (laughs) it was such a deep and recurring pattern that even someone, I would like to say as well catechized as I by a good theologian pastor, could just walk away with this impression of the Bible. And it was only when I really got to seminary um, under the tutelage of Don Jewell, as I like to say, he gave back to me what the Com- revised common lectionary took away. Um, I finally was able to see the old Testament as scripture in its own right, as the word of God and the action of God in its own right, and not either an inadequate or vengeful version of, of superior Jesus. But still there is so much of this very, not only simplistic typology, but there's only one type. So every New Testament story only has one precedent instead of drawing on, as we know, the the hyperlinked um, number of different things that are going on. And it creates, I just think, this very toxic, um, you know, uh, shadow fulfillment kind of uh, thing. I mean, it, it has an old tra- old tradition in the church, but I think it's extremely negative long term.
1: Well, yes, yes. Um... Again, if you're preaching liturgically and the lessons are meant to reinforce the inculcation of the life of Christ so that Christ be formed in us and we become the body of Christ, if that's what the selection of scriptures is doing, I don't know how you really avoid using the Old Testament uh, in the fashion that you're criticizing. For me, the problem is, is that most of the, so often in our circles, uh, for the sake of keeping the service under one hour, when the pastor goes at the service with the scissors, the first thing to get cut out is the Old Testament lesson. And just, it yeah, just dis- it's just dispensed with as such.
0: No, but but I think this is a point. Why do they see the Old Testament lesson is unnecessary? Because what has been chosen is not necessary. It's just right. a, oh yeah, here, here's what the prophet did, but Jesus did it better. So like, why even bother with that? There's no right. integrity to the Old Testament itself. I, we may have mentioned here before this fantastic book by uh, Brent Strawn called The Old Testament is Dying. And it's yeah. exactly to this point that the Old Testament has no longer any life of its own in our churches and man if you lose the Old Testament you are gonna lose the new there's just no way around it but I, I I'm I the reason I'm so exercised is because I think the lectionary is actually accelerating this process of killing off the Old Testament because it has no integrity of its own now there are uh, there is some options sometimes in the summer to read a more like sequential process of Old Testament readings and you could follow through on those but um, you know that that's something but it's the, I think the pattern is so deeply entrenched of, of uh, Old Testament as foiled to superior Jesus. I don't think it can be fixed quite that easily.
1: Yeah, I think c- certainly in the time after Pentecost, the long green season, a lot more narrative, Old Testament narrative could be followed sequentially. And that would go some direction in uh, answering your criticism.
0: And I will say one way I've been trying to address this in my church is that our Bible study now is on the Joseph cycle and then Moses and the Exodus from Genesis 37 through, I don't know, Exodus 20 or whatever, just to try to spend some deep time working through Old Testament together in our our Bible study. But again, you know, that's Bible study, not preaching per se. To to build on this point, um, probably (laughs) you'll be surprised. There's one thing that I hate more than anything else. But the one thing I hate more than anything else is that in Easter season – The Old Testament lesson is dropped in favor of readings from Acts. And I just cannot see any more perfect instantiation of supersessionism than to say, bye-bye, Israel and Old Testament, we're going to put the church in your place um, Hmm. with these stories of the development in Acts. Why not have Acts be the New Testament reading and keep going with the Old Testament? Um, I have seen some, I think the Church of England has alternate Old Testament readings for Easter season. But generally speaking, everywhere I've been, Acts displaces the Old Testament at Easter. I mean, it's just enshrined supersessionism. Dad, you got to push back or people are going to be totally (laughs) bored here. Come on, try.
1: That that point is well taken. I I don't know why readings from Acts cannot appear along with readings from the epistles. Usually this, you know, the Second lesson, instead of replacing the Old Testament lesson.
0: Okay, well, I'll just continue on then. This one, this this I'll be curious. uh, Maybe you can uh, entangle with me a bit more on this. But um, so one of the problems and I say this a little more advisedly, is, okay, so in in most Lutheran churches anyway, you'll have a lay reader read the Old Testament if you've decided to keep it, and then maybe the psalm or you'll sing it. Then you'll have the New Testament reading. Then the preacher will get up into the pulpit and will announce the gospel. It's acclaimed differently. Um, That's what I do, and we read it, and then the gospel of the Lord, uh, praise be to you, O Christ, and everyone sits down and then comes the sermon. So there is a definite pride of place given to the gospel even over other New Testament readings, certainly over the Old Testament readings. Um so the, the preacher somehow has the the gospel reading privilege. Who can argue with that? But then secondly, almost all of the gospel readings you will ever announce from the pulpit as a preacher are narratives and teachings from Jesus' own life. The actual passion, crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus actually occupy a much smaller amount of time in the overall preaching of the entire church year, especially Holy Week, um, the, the events of Holy Week, which are so absolutely crucial to the interpretation of everything else in the New Testament, at least. They only have this one liturgical setting. So there's almost no opportunity to go slowly and take your time with and lavish as much attention to the passion narrative, as you do to all of Jesus' teachings, healings, miracles, etc. And so here's my crazy thesis, Dad. I wonder if a kind of moral theory of the atonement, uh, liberal Protestant version of what would Jesus do, and uh, kind of, I don't know, social justice, um, obsession, orientation is partly a product of spending so much time preaching on Jesus' ministry and so little time preaching on his passion. What do you think?
1: Well, again, that could be an accidental byproduct of the Revised Common Lectionary. That's, it's conceivable what you're saying. But again, if you're trying to use this, if the lectionary is selecting Scripture to reinforce the church's uh, calendar, you know, in Advent, we should be reading texts of, of me- messianic expectation At Christmas, we should be reading texts of the Nativity. In Epiphany, we should be reading texts between baptism and transfiguration of our Lord, the revelation of his divine sonship that occurs in his ministry of of, uh, healing and forgiveness. In Lent, we should be reading texts that uh, send us after Jesus to Jerusalem And, of course, then during Holy Week, we read the text of the Passion. And then in the Easter season, the uh, text of the Resurrection. I I mean, I don't know how you avoid distributing the text this way if you're really going to try to follow the principle of the church here.
0: Yeah, I see that. But again, like you, you just pointed out, the Passion gets a week so this is why people have given up on Palm Sunday and make it Passion Sunday because they realize, well, this is the one shot we have to have people hear the story of Jesus' passion. And then you know the the hardcore show up for Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday, so they'll hear it a little bit more. But that's basically three occasions in the year. And then you have the whole other half of the year, which is usually longer than chronologically than the you know following Jesus part of the year. And it's all it's the, the gospel lessons are all going to be teaching and ministry. And miracles. I mean, I don't have any problem with those per se, but I'm just saying in, in the course of a year's preaching, there's so little time devoted to the passion narrative, which all scholars agree is the the centerpiece of the Jesus story.
1: Right. OK, uh, point well taken. <laughs>
0: OK. I'm not used to uh, uh, knocking you down like a bowling pin quite so easily here, Dad. I'm a little let down. But uh, maybe when we get to some proposed solutions, you can uh, fire it up again. So um, here's another objection I have, a set of them. So in Matthew 26, when Jesus' feet are anointed by the woman, Jesus says, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. It is not told in memory of her in Matthew year. (laughs) And furthermore, in Markier, it is just at the very beginning of the long Passion Sunday reading. So the chances of it getting any kind of homiletical attention are virtually nil. But this is only one of many women whose stories are omitted. You know, there's been a lot of um, anger over the past uh, half century or more at the ways in which women have not had their place in the church. But it turns out there are a lot of them in the scripture who never get any attention. Let me just name them for you, Diana. Both Tamars, Rahab, Aksa, the daughters of Zelophehad. JL Deborah does appear once, but only once, and it omits the part where she has the victory and Barak in his cowardice does not. So that's telling. Jephthah's daughter, the Levite's concubine, Rizpah, Abigail, Michal, Merab, the Shunammite woman, Huldah, Priscilla, Philip's four prophetess daughters, Phoebe, Junia, Tryphena, Tryphosa, Persis, Julia, and the elect lady of second John. So there are all kinds of women who could be mentioned in scripture and who never are. And meanwhile, everyone still thinks Mary, Magdalene was a prostitute and she wasn't. (laughs) Lots of ways to redress the appearance of women being less important in scriptural narrative, but that is um, not much done.
1: Well roared, young lioness.
0: (laughs) You've said that more than once here. Okay, so finally these are kind of wrapping up not specifically to the the content of the RCL. So one of the arguments that's usually made for any lectionary but for the revised common lectionary is the idea that it promotes unity and ecumenical unity. And you know, I'm an ecumenist, so I'm supposed to be in favor of that, right? Well, The fact is that it promotes unity, but only among a very select group of uh, like-minded, fairly mainstream Protestant churches. It does not promote unity between them and, for example, the Roman Church, which has its own lectionary. It is similar, but it's not identical, Um, and certainly not among other kinds of Protestants who don't use those kind of lectionaries. There are both one- and three-year versions. I know that there are some Lutheran advocates of going back to the Reformation one-year lectionary. There's also the African-American lectionary. I've heard other kinds of lectionaries proposed. Um, I know someone who has created a Year D to follow after the, you know, the Matthew, Mark, Luke years A, B, and C, as they're called, to try to redress some of these problems, which is great. But of course, that's another uh, option out there. There's also the narrative lectionary that some of my friends at Luther Seminary have put together, which tries to give more time to some of these other, other. Um, omitted stories, though I have a pastor friend who said it's, it's only a slightly less awful lectionary than the revised common lectionary is, which <laughs> maybe has something to say on the, the very difficulty of actually doing a good lectionary. Maybe this is an insoluble problem. But my point would be is that even, even if it were an instrument of unity, then it would be an instrument of unity premised on all the foregoing flaws. And so I can't say that appeals strongly to me
1: yeah I think you're, the point you're making here is really rather devastating if the point of the revised common lectionary is to create to foster ecumenical unity, all of these intrinsic flaws that are generating counter lectionaries are showing that the, the that the strategy doesn't work it's creating more disunity than unity
0: yeah. Okay, and then I guess so. This would be the one where I maybe push back the hardest against the idea of a lectionary at all, which is simply that does a lectionary really force preachers to deal with texts that they would rather not deal with? I mean, as you've said, you can just scissor out the Old Testament if you want it. Um, the Psalm had been scissored out of the church that I serve now, I put it back in. Um, you know, probably the gospel will stay the course. But the fact is, I have gone to a lectionary churches where the preacher has simply adopted um, a tone of pious disdain for the horror that they were forced to preach on. And um, I have been appalled at how holy scripture has been dealt with and that the, the real takeaway was um, this book is beneath you folks. Don't bother reading it. I can just tell you to avoid it. So I'm not sure that this can, a lectionary strategy can really solve the problem if the issue is fundamental homiletical disdain for the content. Now, of course, that's that's a deeper problem for a certain kind of pastors and certainly not all. I would hope that most people who are making their living on the balance um, love scripture more than they hate it. But I'm just saying if the argument is that uh, lectionary preaching forces preachers to deal with their the topics I'm sure that they can still find lots of ways to avoid the honest encounter anyway
1: I think that's very a very good point Sarah and it's something we've said off and on over these couple of years is that you can't assume that the pastors being educated in the seminaries today come out with any kind of theologically solid understanding of the pastoral vocation so a uh, any pastor who stands in the pulpit in a high-handed way as if that authorized him or her to denounce the scripture that they are supposed to be reading upon, if you don't recognize what a fundamental self-contradiction that is, and that a contradiction on that, of that magnitude cannot be sustained over time, you know, you're, you're, you're on your way out of any uh relationship to the tradi- the great tradition of orthodox christianity if you take a posture like that i worry though that liturgical training uh, how many pastors are just embarrassed to be liturgical leaders and that's why they're constantly uh, kibitzing, uh s- s- shooting out uh, ad hoc lines and glib comments and, and kind of mocking what they're actually doing. Uh, so little do they believe in what they're doing as the, as the liturgical leader who is supposedly shepherding the people of God with the word and sacraments of Christ. I think that's a much deeper problem, uh, a more basic problem than the mechanics of the lectionary.
0: That could well be, though I have also seen the other extreme where the preacher is so intoxicated with the liturgical smells and bells and colors that the whole thing is a performance and the sermon suffers because it is clearly of no importance in the overall no. unfolding of the liturgical drama. Um, why is it that it seems like the more there, there's an inverse relationship to commitment between word and sacrament? It's very rare to see the two properly balanced. There's, seems to be either like it's all about holy communion and like anything you say or preach is totally inadequate so why bother or the sacraments are all just empty shells and mean nothing they're mere ordinances that we'll do once a quarter and we should preach for two hours (laughs) there seems to be a very deep um challenge in maintaining them and in their proper um balanced relationship
1: yeah good point yep
0: yeah All right. Well, let's talk through now some strategies for those, uh, churches and preachers who for whatever reason, um, good or bad (laughs) remain committed to the lectionary or the revised common lectionary or whatever you got. How can you, um, address these concerns, um, while still more or less staying the course, um, if that's the least bad option (laughs) by talking about damning with faint praise. All right. We'll try to make this a little bit better here. So, um, my first suggestion would be to just try preaching far beyond the boundaries of the assigned text. Um, you know, even, even if it, it does say, you know, verses 1 to 4, you can see what verse 5 says and what verse 6 says, and you can draw in the whole entire context of whatever book or letter it's coming from. You don't have to just to, to, to interpret strictly the verses assigned there.
1: How could you even interpret the assigned verses properly if you don't know them in their context? How could your listeners understand the words unless you provide greater context?
0: I know sometimes, like especially, um, I notice uh, New Testament letter readings are often so short, and often like not in a sequence over some some weeks. It's just like I don't know. There's like a key word that matched something in the gospel, and that's why it appears. But you just look at it and say, "Well, this one's a loser. I'm not going to preach on that one." But anyway, you don't have to. You're you're not somehow obligated only to talk about the verses that are. Chosen for the day. Um, Another option that I would promote is that when at look ahead, um, don't just look week to week at what the lectionary assigns, but whenever you see sequences of readings, by all means take advantage of those. So, the the lectionary that we use here in Japan is I don't think it's identical to the RCL, it's pretty close, Um, but there was a long series of Romans readings over the summer, so I just decided to preach Romans the entire summer long, all the way up to the end of the church year. And I think the last few weeks they left Romans and then did kind of assorted other Old Testament or sorry, New Testament epistles. So I decided just to plow on and I finished out all of Romans with the end of the church year and added in uh, what was left out of 15 and 16, which also allowed me to talk about Trifina, Triphosa, Persis, Junia, <laughs> etc. So, I mean, that's, that's something to do is, is is to preach over the long term and look ahead for sequences. Also, I think one year Easter season is the only chance you'll ever have to pre- preach on revelation. So take advantage of those, for example. Very good. Dad, you maybe know more about this than I do, but I've noticed in many European Lutheran churches, they will read the lectionary readings and then the pastor will get up in the pulpit and read the preaching text and preach on that. Ah, uh, this seems totally incoherent, but it is at least an option if you feel stuck with the lectionary. Can you enlighten us as to what that's all about,
1: Sarah? I've always been baffled by that. <laughs> I, when I experienced this in Germany or in Slovakia, I would ask, "Why do you do that? Why don't you, <laughs> why don't you preach on the assigned text?" And that was why well, we just don't do that. Yeah, I said you know, it's the same kind of liturgical incoherence when they were all upset in Europe about introducing a Eucharistic prayer. And at the same time, when the pastors uh, consecrated the Lord's Supper, they turned their backs to the congregation and said the words, the verba, the words of institution facing the wall and the altar. (laughs) And I I said, you know, who are you talking to? Are you? If you, Is this a prayer? <laughs> You're talking to God with your back to the congregation? Why are you, you know, I, I just think there's a lot of liturgical lunacy. People don't think, just don't think about what they're doing in the church service. But uh, I'm sorry, that's my little rant.
0: <laughs> oh, I, I'm, I'm sure listeners were eager to hear you rant for a change instead of me. So, uh, You
1: know, uh, what I would say in terms of pastoral practice, uh, something I did, in my years of being a pastor is I would always begin study of the appointed lessons on Monday of my work week, and I would then i you know usually we had them printed on the back cover of the bulletin and so when I made my visits, you know whether they were hospital visits or home visits or Sunday school teachers' meetings, whatever, wherever I went, I took those readings with me and I used them in my devotions with the people, uh, in in a variety of different contexts. And that was a way not only of preparing the congregation for what's coming on Sunday, but for me to see how these texts intersect with the real lives of people. And that was very fruitful for generating sermons.
0: Oh, that's really great. I like that. I am—I um, haven't had that experience, but I started um, an e-newsletter that goes out Friday morning to you know invite people, remind them of church on Sunday, but I also send the lessons coming up for the Sunday service. And I've been very pleased that on the couple occasions I forgot to click the schedule button or whatever, and so it hasn't gone out at the right time, someone will always email me and say, um, Pastor, where's the newsletter? I haven't gotten the lessons for next Sunday yet. And that really... <laughs> delights me that people are are eager to um to get that in preparation but i really like the idea of um of threading it through your actual pastoral work for the week so you're saying you would not advise the uh, the european choose a different preaching text strategy then <laughs>
1: Uh, I it, it's uh, it makes no sense to me at all but maybe I'm missing something I don't know.
0: I don't I I never understood that either. But anyway, uh, my my only reason I bring it up is that if for other reasons you are are captive to the lectionary and you really need something else, you know, it has been done. It's not great, but it's something. <laughs> um, you can, of course, just try a different lectionary altogether. Um, you know, again, there's this narrative lectionary and that just for the the change. I mean, sometimes like, I don't know, I, I've heard so many sermons on Naaman the Syrian and they all make me so angry. It might just be the preachers I've heard preach on them. But there there might get a point where, especially if you're an older pastor and you've been through this cycle a lot of times and you just can't take it anymore, everything feels stale. A different lectionary might just help you, um, you know, have a different set to work from. If, if nothing else, I would say please reinstate Old Testament lessons during the Easter season. Uh, if there's just one single liturgical act against supersessionism, that would be the one that I would uh, press forward most strongly. And find ways to keep on preaching on the Old Testaments um, as uh, In its own right, I mean, you don't have to pretend like Jesus never happens, but I think there's such, uh, you know, the Old Testament is dying. Like that book said, there's such a crisis of taking the Old Testament seriously as Christian scripture, um, any opportunity you can grab to make that the center and focus of your preaching, you know, bring Jesus is as necessary, but not because in a, you know, facile Jesus did it better kind of way that this really is our holy scripture too. And I think
1: it's, it's, it's worth adding here, Sarah, that the Old Testament is not simply as this caricature that you were discussing in people's minds that it's a inadequate foreshadowing of something Jesus did better, that's a really bad theology of the Old Testament. The Old Testament frames the question of salvation. Uh, so much of the problems in the contemporary church come from Uh, A kind of, uh, I spoke nicely of Paul Tillich recently, uh, but a a very bad understanding of his method of correlation, in which the contemporary situation of uh, the audience frames the question of salvation, so that the preacher then turns the gospel into an answer to the contemporary question. The problem with this is that it radically de-Judaizes the proclamation of salvation in Christ. Christ, the anointed one, the Meshiach, is a Hebrew Bible conception of the Savior sent from God. And the classical doctrinal articulation of this is the uh, triplex munus, the the threefold office of Christ as prophet, priest, and King, and these categories of the prophet who tells forth the Word of God, of the priest who mediates between the Holy God and the sinful people, of the King who executes justice in the land, these categories frame the question of salvation, and if you dispense with these questions. You might have the answer, but you're going to be answering all the wrong questions.
0: Yeah, like the old jokes, Jesus is the answer, but what was the question?
1: <laughs> right. And, you, you know, Paul, that's why I, well, we're going to talk about Reinhold Niebuhr at some point this year, I think. But in his two-volume Nature and Destiny of Man, the Gifford Lectures, he discusses the question where a Messiah is expected and where a Messiah is not expected very interesting way of putting the question of salvation. And I think that's one of the reasons why we must not let the Old Testament die. The Old Testament has to inform us about the Lord's controversy with his creation gone astray and how the gospel of Jesus Christ is God's own reconciliation of that controversy the Lord has with his creation run amok.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I'll just say that as I have looked again in my almost parallel to the revised common lectionary um readings for opportunities to preach on the Old Testament, it is really hard to do with the lectionary as we have it now. So preachers may need to get a little bit creative of uh, doing their own preaching series on the Old Testament set within, you know, parallel to building off of what the, the lectionary offers. But it just, it isn't, the lessons are not chosen to convey what you just said, Dad, about the integrity of the Old Testament as being the framer of the question and the categories from which we understand everything. Or um, as I said, I think in a previous episode, the New Testament is a focused episode in the life of Israel. And the Old Testament is the story of Israel. So we shouldn't see it as a as a subsequent um, or, or break off from the Old Testament story. But an episode within it, I think, is a more useful way of looking at Yeah, it. I think
1: if, if I were taking your advice, I'm just thinking here about this on the top of my head, off the top of my head, that if I were responsible for l- preaching and leading worship in a congregation, I might think about the time after Pentecost, the long green season, as a place to uh, in, insert l- uh, large sequences of Old Testament narrative. I think, for example, First and Second Samuel, and First and Second Kings, are just a wealth of stories that the contemporary congregation are simply ignorant of. They don't know anything about them. And then, how rich would a series of sermons on Ruth or Jonah be? Let alone the Book of Job, which could. Uh, you know, some of the wisdom literature, like the book of Job, uh, could, could really be valuable uh, if it were attended to during the long green season.
0: Yeah, that's where the RCL does have alternate readings that are a little more sequential. They're still a bit thin for my taste, but you could definitely build off of them. And again, just think if you are if you go all of Pentecost season following these Old Testament stories, how much richer will Advent be when you come into it finally knowing what you're expecting when you get there um. makes such a big difference? Yeah. Yeah. Um and uh, and related to that, um I literally did not realize Israel had been in exile until I got to seminary. Like <laughs> and the entire Old Testament is redacted in some sense with this piercing sorrow of exile all over it as um as one of my Old Testament professors Dennis Olson once observed to me that there's there's no There's none of the old testament exists without the exile being somewhere hauntingly in the background. And that I I didn't know. And again, I was a super well catechized church attending young person. But the story, the actual story of the exile does not appear anywhere in the RCL. And there's no particular reason with a lot of the prophetic writings that you would understand that's what it's talking about, unless your preacher went out of his or her way to make it clear this is what happened. So I find a lot of times when I'm when I'm preaching, I'm just I'm having to give a lot of history lessons because the stuff is unintelligible without understanding the the level of sorrow and shock of the exile that's coloring everything that's going on. So that's that's a case where you're going to just have to go beyond the lectionary if you're going to bring that story back to the center of consciousness again.
1: Again, you just could you imagine uh, the opportunity to preach for a summer on the book of Jeremiah or the book of Ezekiel? the great exilic prophets. And uh, yeah, I just think that that would all be incredibly enriching for people. Of course, it would mean preachers actually have to study. So that's another question, right?
0: Yeah, well, and congregations have to be willing to let their preachers study and to value it and encourage them in that direction. That opens the door for me to to make a little confession here uh, where I'm coming from since I've been quite, uh, this has been a Jeremiah, shall we say, and I've been a bit on my high horse about all this. But um, when I was, the first time I was a pastor a dozen years or more ago, um, I it was, I've alluded to, it was a very painful and difficult ministry. But one thing, looking back on it, I see is that I, during that time, was only encountering scripture in a professional sense, which is, okay, I have to preach each Sunday. These are the lessons that I have to preach on. And, you know, and I would craft my sermon and I would preach it and then I would go on to the next week. But my primary engagement with the scripture was as my professional source book. And when everything came crashing down, um, not primarily due to that. (laughs) I don't think Uh, there are a lot of other things going on there. And I had to just check out of church for a while because I was so hurt and damaged and shocked by everything that had happened. Um, I kind of looked at my Bible again, because I wasn't going to church, but it was Sunday and I couldn't not do anything. And I was just like, oh, right. (laughs) this is not a professional source book. This is the word of life and the word of God. And I need to find a different way of engaging with it. And so I just started there as like, all right, well, I'm, you know, I had read, made a point, made, I'd made sure that I'd read the whole thing before I was ordained. I felt like I had to have said that I'd read the whole Bible before I got ordained. But I just started over again and worked my way through the whole entire thing. And I've done it a second time since then. I mean, obviously it's some of it more than twice, but but um, it was really important for me to discover though i had to discover it in this very painful way that you're as even as a preacher and a pastor a professional in religion you have to have your primary relationship to the bible be a devotional one one that you go to as the word of life, and not something that you're just flipping through to find, okay, what am I going to preach on this week? And that's (laughs) going to come out no matter whether you're using a lectionary or not, and whatever its flaws, uh, it's it's going to make itself heard in your preaching, what kind of relationship you personally have to the scripture.
1: You know, I think you can really tell that, too, because a, a good preacher shows passion. And that can be delight. It can also be an open expression of discomfort. But in any case, a good preacher has a passionate relationship to the text that they're preaching. I certainly know my experience as a preacher. The sermons I enjoy the most are the ones that lead me to doxology, the ones that lead me to a a celebration of the uh, benefits of Christ and the goodness of God uh, and joy uh, in the Holy Spirit. And I think people, even if they don't always intellectually comprehend uh, everything in a sermon, they get that sense uh, that these are indeed the words of life, They that they can really mean it. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. They can sense that Coming through, and then of course at that point, that's all a sermon can accomplish, and the teaching part has to has to pick up the the rest.
0: Okay, well to wrap this up, um, I wanted to address one more little homiletical question with you, uh, Dad, uh, which may or may not depend on a lectionary, which is it's often attributed to Karl Barth the expression that you should preach with the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. And um, I have to say this to me is an expression that reflects an earlier era when newspapers were different and people were different and there was not such a thing as the news cycle. So I hear this now and I hear total captivity to whatever the media has determined is the crisis du jour. And if you as a preacher (laughs) are not talking about it, whether it's a natural disaster on the other part of the world or the election or crime or social issues or whatever, then you're failing in your responsibility to properly address the crisis of the day. But that seems to me as being completely enslaved to someone else's idea of what's actually important. Um, Now I'm in a different situation because I am in an international congregation and, and a multilingual congregation, and not everybody's news is the same. So to my idea of what's important might not be my congregation's idea anyway, but I can't say I'm strongly inclined to preach that way anyway. I think um, my feeling is that um, the word of God needs to set the agenda rather than the newspaper. But um, you come from a you are in the United States and you come from a different generation. So I'm just curious what you think about that vis-a-vis the, the homiletical task. Well, there,
1: there was a time in the past in the United States in which a lot of conservative pastors, but also a lot of middle class pastors were. Uh, constantly would say things like, I preach a spiritual, not a political gospel, right? And so they, they, I remember one time listening to a radio broadcast when I was a teenager about an evangelist uh, from South Africa touring the United States. And the uh, journalist interviewing this evangelist asked him about apartheid and he piously said, well, I only talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't get into politics. And I think that's, that's where the illusion that you can have a apolitical gospel was what Karl Barth was attacking. Uh, if the gospel really is the word of God for the salvation of the world— it, it's going to have worldly consequences, including political consequences. The, the problem is that when preachers think they're in control of that, when preachers think that they are able to tell you A, B, C, D, this is what follows from the gospel, love my politics, love God, or you're no good, you know, <laughs> it, that, it's that kind of a confusion. The word of God creates a tumult, a disruption in the world, and you can't simply control the political fallout uh, of the proclamation of the gospel. It's not in your control. Uh, that's something I think we emphasized a week ago. Uh, that God makes Himself an object of our knowledge without ceasing to be the subject. You can't capture God uh, in in the in in those ways you have to trust the Holy Spirit to drive home the message in the way that it um, it ought to affect a whole variety of listeners. So I think you're right, Sarah, it's in our context today to be a little bit reticent about speaking uh, uh, to the crisis de jure that you called it. Now, I think today, of course, we we were dominated in the United States by the coronavirus and the pandemic. It would be very difficult to be a pastor who's not aware of that when they're uh, (laughs) preaching a sermon. You know, we just had, we have a a presidential election that's still uh, being challenged and uh, some political uncertainty. Of course, a pastor has to be aware of that. And, 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 but I think the minute you overstep your authority, you're in danger of a certain kind of clericalism where you think you can directly relate the gospel to the political issues of the day in some kind of definitive way. You know, vague, you can speak generally about that racism is a sin. And I don't think anybody should hesitate to say that. But then to talk about the political solutions to racism from the pulpit, you know, I I think this is a much better topic for a Bible study where there can be give and take and people are not disempowered by The monopoly on the soapbox that the preacher enjoys.
0: Right. So you don't want to forbid or deny people from drawing political conclusions, like you said, used to be the case, but that it shows a lack of trust in God if you think you can preach the word of God and people won't get political consequences without you as the preacher spelling out what they are and exactly what they should be. But in fact, the gospel rightly proclaimed and truly heard is going to affect how people behave in their polis as well.
1: That's right. And I think you know, in the give and take of a conversation, which I don't think is what the pulpit's for. I think the pulpit is for the proclamation, the affirmative proclamation of the gospel. So I I don't like any of this dialogue preaching. I think it's all bogus. But dialogue is wonderful, but that's for the classroom, not for the sanctuary, where there can be give and take and where uh, assertions can be challenged and put to the test. Right. And where the pastor does not arrogantly think that she or he already knows the answers to questions that have vexed us so profoundly.
0: Right. Right. Well, then I would say if a, a lectionary can hold back a, um, a high handed preacher from making pronouncements or creating themes or preaching series that fit their own political agenda, then by all means, the lectionary is going to be the lesser of two evils. But uh, hope that, uh, anyway, hope that this, this, this uh well, not really discussion, this has definitely been a one directional rant on my part, but has at least um, empowered preachers out there to think a little more creatively about what they can do with the materials they've been given.
1: Well, I hope so, too. Uh, I would only say that I'm going to continue being a, a three-lesson-a-day electionary preacher. I'll think about some of the—but I'm not, I'm not in charge of planning services anymore, so I can't really act on any of your suggestions. But it's been nice to think about them with you.
0: All right. Good enough for me. All right. Well, next time on the show, we will start working on the Gospel of John. Thanks for listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlekeywilson.com and paulhenlekey.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.